Hello, my name's Stephen, as Dan has said. A few words about Dan since he got, since he got his chance at me. Uh, Dan is, uh, there are many people who say many things, many people who talk. Dan is one who does. And uh, he's been in Africa for years. And as the attention focused on Rwanda in the last five years, you have scores hundreds of all sorts of wonderful things coming into Rwanda. And Dan was the quiet type who would sit back and just point to our leaders, the Africans, to extraordinary numbers of people being served. And I think many of you have been in Burundi, so you know uh, the numbers, the people, the moms, the kids, the dads. So Dan is one who does, and in fact, one of the reasons why I went out to Rwanda was to work with Dan. He also is a runner, as David and I found out this morning, that when you jog with Dan, you go into the bush. And there's bush here in Bend, I've learned, into the riverbeds. And uh, one time in Burundi, I was following Dan on one of these jogs and, you know, sort of belly flopped into a rice paddy and came up, went down white, came up African looking brown, full of mud. Uh, just an opening thought and perhaps a, a thank you to Justin and the team. The thirst, the thirst coming forward from today's worship time, and I'm sure that's all of your times, is, is a beautiful thing. And my guess is you're here because of that thirst, thirsting for God. So thank you. Let me do this. I want to read a passage from Micah. I'll speak from Micah particularly 6.8. If you have some, a Bible to read from, please do. Otherwise, I'll just read it, sit back and listen. And then we'll share a few thoughts from there, from Micah 6.8. I will start with Micah chapter 6, verse 6, and go through to verse 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted one? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, for my sin? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And verse 8, which you perhaps know, He has showed you, O people, Oh, Adam, the word is Adam, meaning all people. He has showed you, oh people, what is good. And what does the great I am, the Lord, require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, may I be able to, to, to thirst together with... Um, the people here in, in Antioch Church. Would this be a, a few minutes of thirsting after you? And you say you fill us as we thirst and hunger for righteousness. But we embrace that paradox of as we thirst for more, we also grow more thirsty for you. Father, teach us about justice. Teach us about mercy. Teach us about humility today. <clears throat> Amen. I have two boys. Uh, my youngest son is Caleb. And if Caleb were a cartoon character, he would be Tigger because he's just happy. 
He's the kind of boy that wakes up in the morning and looks at you very close within inches of your face when you're still sleeping, waiting for you to wake up. And he's smiling, and you wake up, and you're like, how can you be that happy so early in the morning? <laughs> That's Caleb. Dan stayed with us many times, so he knows Caleb. <clears throat> when we moved back from Rwanda, uh, we moved to Baltimore. In the wintertime, it was cold, and like all of you who are fathers and mothers, you long to create a sense of wonder in your kids. That is a gift to impart. The better excuse there might be that we as adults just look for excuses to be children again. So we bought a telescope and we were going to look at the moon. It was cold outside. Um, we had already put on our pajamas, at least the kids had. And so we went out into our deck in the back of our house and we focused in on the moon. And this is one of those cheap old telescope, telescopes at Walmart. And you're thinking, is this thing even going to work? And Dad's desperately trying to get the moon in focus. And sure enough, finally, after the tweak in there, it was full focus. You could see the craters. And sort of the glee of not only Caleb, but Joshua, my oldest son. Uh, wow, Daddy, that's the moon. Big. How big is it? And the questions as we were shivering out on our deck in January in Baltimore. And after we were done, Caleb said, Daddy, this is so great. Now can we look at the earth? <laughs> he, having seen those, those big balls of blue that you can see on the internet, <clears throat> and there's Caleb asking, the, asking to look at the earth. And of course we laughed and did the perfunctory explanation. <clears throat> well, as I come and see a community like this, um, as I see others, and part of the great privilege we have, all of us here, what we'll leave many of you, is to travel from one community to another from time to time, not only here in our country, but around the world. I, I feel very strongly that we're, we're not able to see the awakening that we're standing on. That there's something extraordinary happening in our midst. And the missiologists will say it is clear that there's, a, re there's a, a renaissance. Some people call it the evangelical renaissance. That word has some baggage. Just, just the renaissance, a postmodern renaissance. And you can count 400 years from the time of Christ forward. And you can see these revivals and these renaissances. Celtic renaissance in 400 AD. 800, the Carolinian, which is Benedictine monks and that whole monastic movement and then at 1200 uh, SEC, 1600 Reformation, 1600, 400 years, 2000, boom. We're standing on top of an earth that we can't see. It's an extraordinary awakening. And it's, 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 it's the this, this surge in church growth. In places like Africa and China, there might be 100 million Christians. And Africa went from 9 million to 300 million in the space of 50 years, perhaps more. You have Brazilians going to be missionaries in Angola. I have friends who speak of Iranians going to live among the Uyghur people in China and minister among them. <clears throat> so you have this extraordinary happening. And a hundred years out from now, they'll look back at this time and say, wow, there was something extraordinary that happened there. This awakening also has with it something that is... Um, it speaks of justice. It, that there's a movement that 
people have collectively said, including yourselves, no, we won't, we won't stand by and watch this happen with little girls who are trafficked to the tune of a million a year, or child soldiers, or just plain poverty, or food prices around the world, or immigrants, or... And so there's a, there's a collective standing up of people in prayer and advocacy um, that's unprecedented. And, and we see it from a vantage of world relief because we play our small role in it. Our small role being uh, not, just, not to do it on our own, but to mobilize the worldwide church to speak into that. And in so doing, they speak into us, just as this church is speaking into us through Dan Tambrian directly now as we meet you. So this justice generation, you've heard of this, this movement, Shane Claiborne, Rob Bell, you all, um, and then all of the unknown names around the world, churches of 200,000 people in India, um, Africa, Nigeria churches are huge. There's something in Micah that speaks to this movement and should be a guide, could be one guide, a star to lead us, as we're quite frankly privileged to be part of a movement of God. And yes, we have stood and we have risen to it, but in so standing, in our prayers, God has arisen and heard the cries of the poor and the oppressed. I mean, to think of God on a throne, I know this is uh, metaphorical per se, but there comes a point when the collective cry of his people, not only the poor, but those who stand on behalf of the poor, there comes a point when he arises, this strong word throughout the Psalms, when he arises and he, said, he says, that's enough. This is happening in our midst. Micah, the book of Micah speaks to it. There's three words in there that I've mentioned in my prayer, justice, humility, uh, and um, mercy, justice, mercy, and humility that I want to speak. And I have two points today. I'll give you those points in case you're wondering where I'm heading. First point is it's not optional. It's not like some of us can do justice, mercy, and humility. All of us have to. It's absolutely unequivocal. It's part of the gospel. <clears throat> Second point is this. Can't just do one. Can't just be a justice generation. Justice generation is to be commended, but it has to be entwined, three cords wrapped together with mercy and humility. Um, yeah, those are my two points. First, let's just talk a bit about justice. Um, the word there means something that is righteous, something that is done right, defending the rights of another. Um, it's a clear mandate. You have it carrying all the way through the scriptures. Even Christ in the New Testament, when he's speaking against the Pharisees and says, Woe unto you, these seven woes in Luke. One time he says, Woe to them because they have not done justice, loved mercy, and acted out in faithfulness is the word he uses there. Justice, I think it's something that's in your midst. I sat with um, Ken, your leader, Courtney and Gary, and they just told me story after story of what is happening in your midst. Not just Burundi and the trip there, but anti-trafficking. We've got photos as we walk in today of beautiful people from around the world taken by Benjamin. You're stepping out into justice. I commend you. I salute you. And, and as I said before, you're teaching us as the church rises and steps out into justice.
two points on justice. One is when, a, when an awakening comes, and we were discussing this last night, an awakening always brings with it a certain amount of chaos. Something is new. There's a certain awakening. And even in your hearts as you contemplate perhaps what you have about children being trafficked or about poverty or about people can't afford a simple meal of rice today because of the worldwide food prices. Something goes inside viscerally and there's a, there's a righteous even anger that comes forward. That's an awakening. It's a beautiful thing. And you might find yourself going, well, the sense of what, can I, what, what do I do? I don't know what to do with this. What can I do? Courtney says, I've got droves of people coming to me saying, what can we do? That's a good problem to have. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good mess, if you will. When a, an awakening comes, and you can look at movements across history, and these awakenings came when there was a, a new sense of, of spiritual thirst. There was something on the periphery happening, people going to the margins, people wanting to go and incarnate and live among people. When there was an a, a innovation in communication, you see an innovation in communication with all of those movements, the Gutenberg Press being the most notable in 1600, but today what is it? It's the Internet. And maybe also travel, the ease of travel. So you have this awakening happening. Things get messy and chaos, chaotic in a sense. And it's time following that awakening that we must landscape and move, uh, move the dirt, plant the trees. Where's my part? Where do I fit? I don't have to stand on this stage and seek to awaken you to justice. It's clear. Your leader, your leader's those of you who are passionate about these things, there's an awakening that is, is in the midst of, we're in the midst of it. What I can encourage you to do is to recognize it as an awakening and it will take time to find how it should be landscaped for Antioch Church. Our culture in, in, in the United States is an extraordinary culture. As much as I desired to live overseas and have for years... I love coming back. I love our culture. I love it. Every, every aspect of it. <clears throat> Parts of it are crazy and, and we need to change. But one of our deficiencies, one of our weaknesses is that we're the instant culture, uh, instant um, gratification, instant solution to a problem. And so as you overlay that cultural weakness onto this awakening that I'm speaking of, it will be very tempting for us to want to solve it quickly. My challenge to you would be simply this. Which issue, under the banner of justice, which issue would you consider giving your whole life to? Taking time to, to nurture that awakening into something that you can landscape over the rest of your life. What we need, for those of us working in the justice movement, we need people who are willing to take hold of an issue and go deep. Go very deep with that issue. It could be a, it could be a country instead. It could be a people. It could be Burundi. It could be Congo. It could be the Darfurians in, in Sudan. could be the immigrant issue here. But I would, I would challenge you to pick something that you're inclined or you're, you gravitate towards and say, God, am I willing to give my life to this? Are you willing to spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and the oppressed? Isaiah 58. And as you, this, this will move our awakening into something that can be landscaped well for years to come, 50, 100 years, and really bring about long-term, how would you say, life. Pick an issue. 
if you're an economist and you like business, there's, there's a revolution happening in the business community that we've seen. I mean, the reason why Dan and I are even in this is because of this revolution, this revival in business. Make that your life issue. If you're compassionate about um, the immigrant issue here in the States, what about the injustice against the elderly in our, in our own culture? Sort of marginalizing them, pushing them to the side. That's a justice issue. I'm not here just to speak about what beliefs concerns. But I would challenge you to pick an issue and make it something you can give your life to. Is it worthwhile to spend your life on behalf of children who are trafficked around the world, even into this, perhaps, this state, this county, Portland, and otherwise? Go deep, is my question. I'm calling you to go deep, because we need that. And everything I sense, everything I've read through Dan, in terms of Antioch churches, you're willing to go deep. Justice, number two. Loving mercy. Doing justice, number two, loving mercy. I said um, we can't do justice alone. And I, I've even said this, and perhaps this is too strong, to do justice alone without the other two, as this mandate from Micah encourages us, could very well lead to a bit of a heresy that we spin out into something that's entirely rights-based, only justice we could become concerned entirely with the rights of the human being. Is that wrong? No. But if you go down that road too far, everybody's concerned about your own rights. It becomes a possessive individualism. It can become, it can become paralyzing. This point will become a little bit more clear in a moment. But let me tell a story first. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in the Catholic Church. And um, I was an altar boy. Some of you may have been Catholic. And so you're an altar boy. You put on these gowns, red some days, black the other, never knew white, why it was different colors. <clears throat> and at a certain point in the middle of the Mass, you pick up these bells and you ring them. And it's during the Eucharist. And they raise the host and these type of things. Well, the greatest fear of an altar boy is you're going to ring those bells at the wrong time. And you have to sort of pick them up right before it's time, and you've got to slowly pick them up. And the greatest mistake of an inexperienced altar boy is you pick them up and you move it, and you've got to clank, 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 right before it's the, you know, the host goes up and there's the big ring. It's very nervous. Very nervous at that point as an altar boy. The rest is kind of fun. You can doze off during the sermon. <laughs> it's not a big deal. As long as you've got the right color on, <clears throat> you're okay. Well, justice without mercy and humility can be that clang at the wrong time. And it's very articulated in 1 Corinthians 13. If you, if you sing with angels, like this woman up here has a beautiful voice, um, but have not mercy, and by the way, this word mercy is a word called hesed or chesed in Hebrew. It's an extraordinary word, one of the most important words in the Old Testament, mentioned 240 times. It speaks of this unconditional, reckless love that God gives to us. So mercy doesn't do it. Love sentiment sentimentalizes it. There's something deep in that word. If you move mountains and you have the faith to move mountains, if you sell all you have, all you possess to the poor, justice, and yet you have not hesed this love. You are the clank of the altar boy at the wrong time. So this justice movement, and I first and foremost apply this to my own life as I step out 
and work with people like Dan and Allison and David and say, justice, bring justice to the people of Congo, thousands dying each day from normal maladies that we would just go to the local clinic for. As I do that, I ask myself about Hesed and my loving mercy. There was a story in, uh, on CNN's website, might have been in uh, different places, but certainly CNN, on Rwanda. And I've lived in Rwanda, so I took notice of this story, and I've heard a handful, if not more, of stories just like it. The story was this. It was a woman who had lived through the genocide and lost her five children and her husband to basically a gang of, of her neighbors uh, with machetes. And she saw her children being killed. She saw her husband being killed. And she saw the people who killed her family. And she, life went on as it did in Rwanda. There's still a lot of healing to happen there. And she got involved in a microenterprise type of thing to connect it with Macy's. That's the, one of the topics of the story. But this, the point of the story is this. She has forgiven one of the perpetrators, one of the killers of her family, a guy named Bizimana, John Bosco. There's a lot of John Boscos in Rwanda. She has not only forgiven him, but she goes to church with him and often shares meals together with him and his wife. Justice, the rights of those children that were killed, the rights of this woman would say, wait a minute, there needs to be punishment. Justice must be done. He was in prison for seven years. He went through a tribal court system. After seven years, he comes out and they're brought together. They live together in the same area, Gitarama, which is an hour from Kigali, the capital. Mercy... Chesed says justice may or may not have been fully paid for. How do you pay for five children and a husband? I let justice go. She let justice go and invited him back into her life. Not only forgiveness, but fellowship. Justice will, um, the world will take note of justice. <coughs> and the world has taken note of justice. And the world has taken note of justice through the justice movement. The world, is, the world is, is changed by mercy. How do you, how, what does CNN do with this story? Why is it on CNN? They don't know what to do with it. How can you sit with somebody who's murdered your family? It's the simple chesed love that Christ gave to us and the most compelling reason why we serve our Father and our Lord is because at some moment in our, in our lives, and perhaps it continues on and should, we recognize how awful and how much of miserable failure we are. We saw all the egregious error in our life and we looked up to a God who said, I love you anyway. And my love is not conditioned upon what you have done right or done wrong. Come unto me. This hesed mercy has compelled us to rise up in justice. Mercy wants us to go out into the world and bring justice. But once justice is bring, there has to be forgiveness. Forgiveness is, what do you do with that? Jesus was on the cross as the victim, but also identifying and giving atonement with the perpetrator. So he's the victim on the cross, identifying with anyone who is victimized, injustice done. But at the same time, on the cross, he's offering atonement for the perpetrator, symbolized in the thief, those who killed him 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Good Samaritan, I've told that story many times and preached on the Good Samaritan as the quintessential story for charity. The Good Samaritan crosses the road. The religious people walked by. You're a church that has crossed the road and you've knelt down and you've gotten your hands messy into the bloody victim. You're doing that justice. And there is a clear sub-theme in the Good Samaritan of charity. Clear, unequivocal. But the point of the story is not charity. The point of the story is, who is thy neighbor, the question asked. And this neighbor is a Samaritan that despised one of the Jews. There was a gasp, a collective gasp, when Christ said the Samaritan, and not what was expected, the Pharisee. Because it was their despised enemy that came and knelt down to a presumable, uh, to a Jew. And so the, the point of that story is, is mercy, is hesed for your neighbor who you have um, enmity towards. The point of that story is loving your enemies. The point of that story is forgiveness. The point of that story is looking at the one who has offended you, perhaps for years, and you love them anyway. So justice, yes, and, and, and charity, and standing up and asking God to stand up, but without without this unequivocal hesed, this is the mark of Christ. This is the mark that distinguishes us, the church, more than anything. It's going out, not just around the world, but to the person that you're ticked off with, the person that just bugs you. And you say, you know what, God, I'm offended, and uh, it's okay. I'm going to love this person anyways. That's the mark of Christianity. That's what changes the world. And quite frankly, that is the hardest thing for this guy to do. I can, I can travel around the world and help solve world poverty issues, but the guy who just bugs me, who's in the, in the line in front of me or on the road, I have a hard time with. So it's the, it's the, it's the mercy and justice together intertwined that changes. It becomes a revolution. I have, a, uh, I have my own struggles in people and relationships and my wife, who is um, a mentor to me in many ways, she said, Stephen, why don't you do something just opposite of just trying to debate and work through the issue? And of course, I'm trying to work through some things with this person. She said, Stephen, go out and buy this person something that they, they like and give it to them anom anonymously. Do something in the spirit that is an act of mercy. And I'm like, good night, spend a hundred bucks and do this and I don't even get credit for it. That's awful. <laughs> so we did it. Ah, simple acts of mercy, not just the extraordinary ones, is what um, moves a generation that has a distinguishing mark of justice to a movement that causes people to look at something and you just can't look away. I used to work with Mercy Ships years ago and 1970s, there was teams of YWAMers. YWAM was part of Mercy Ships in those days, Youth with a Mission. And they were in the camps in Thailand. There was the, the Pol Pot issue, and there was refugees, and this was way back in the 70s. And they were working in this camp of refugees, and the problem in the camp was sewage. And the, the, the latrines were overflowing with massive sewage problems. Nobody knew, knew what to do. The YWAMers, Youth with the Mission, somebody got an idea. Some young kid, 
Some gangly kid said, why don't we clean out the sewers and help these people? Oh, man, really? <clears throat> they went in there, a whole team, and jumped in that sewer and dug out this problem for days. And the people looked and said, how can, whoa, you know, Americans and Europeans doing this? It's an act of kindness, an act of mercy, not took notice. They were um, asked to be part of charge of the camp, uh, be put in charge of the camp with, uh, with the UN and so forth, and the rest is history. It began a whole movement in what is in Youth of the Mission now, which is their mercy ministries worldwide, 10,000 people. Third point, humility. Um, let, me, let, me, let me read a quote on humility. Tell you a brief story, moving towards closing here. Mother Teresa is speaking of choosing our own poverty, this idea of stepping into humility. She says this. With regard to God, our poverty is our humble recognition and acceptance of our sinfulness, helplessness, and utter nothingness in the acknowledgement of our neediness before him. Our poverty should be true gospel poverty, gentle, tender, glad, and open-hearted, always ready to give an expression of love, to love, it is necessary to give. And to give, it is necessary to be free from selfishness. If we have justice and we do justice, if we love mercy and we lack humility, what do we have? First of all, if we lack humility, the justice movement, even a mercy movement, will be all about us. But if we recognize through utter humility in our own poverty, that good night, we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for this amazing, reckless outpouring of love from Christ into our own lives. The Greek word there, walk humbly, walk simply means walk, rhythm, do it every day. The same word is used for the regularly flowing rivers, the wind that blows often. So there's this idea of, of routine, and you could argue mundane, and so it's this doing justice, loving mercy, changing the world. Don't ever step back from that call. Let your leader be a visionary. But don't ever let go of the daily life that we must live in humility. To the extent we miss that, oh, we have nothing. Because we don't give the credit to God. We don't recognize our own frailty. We can quickly take a right turn or a left turn in our own personal morality. Humility is, is essential. It, with humility, you have something that is incarnational. That is, you have people who are not sort of up here saying, oh, let's help the people down here, but we come in among and we live with and we say, gosh, can I help? Quite frankly, I need a lot of help too. That's the posture we have. When we have um, time together with our African staff, I am always amazed at how much I walk away and say, gosh, I just wish I had more of Jean-Paul Magijamana. I wish I had more of Gaida. You'll meet him. He'll come here one day from Burundi. It's reciprocal because we all are at the foot of the cross. All of it's flat. So in the midst of doing something extraordinary, and I, f I believe leadership is quite frankly facilitating, creating space for the common person to do something extraordinary. The leader, too, being common. And so never let go of the extraordinary. Pursue justice. Pursue reckless mercy and recognize it in our own life. But let's do it very open-handedly and say we're humble, we're broken people, and we can mess it up at any point in time. 
And as much as we're seeking to help those who are poor, we recognize our own poverty as we do that. We recognize the wealth of the poor as they serve us, this reciprocity. Quick story to close. C.S. Lewis, um, you have this thing called the kilns, and you guys are into Lewis, so you may have heard this. <clears throat> when he was um, just starting to become known in Britain about 1940, 1939, it was, it was then that he first had this idea of writing kids' books. Caspian is out now, so you might be familiar with Narnia. He walked down the stairs, and he met his brother, whose name was Warney, and he had a, two boarders in the house at that time, Mrs. Moore and her daughter. I believe her name was Maureen. And he said, I've got an idea. I'm going to write a kid's story. They, they belly laughed at him and said, You write a kid's story? Of all people. Good night. Give it up. 1947, seven years later, Warney had gone to the war. He's back now. He had a tough time in the war. He sort of slipped into alcoholism. Maureen, one of his uh, boarders, the daughter, has moved out and gotten married. Her mom has gotten senile and has dementia. dementia. So much so that she has a dog named Bruce, and Bruce, um, in her mind, has to be let out to... Um, defecate every 20, 15, 20 minutes. She's convinced that this dog, if you don't let him out of the house, he will poop on the, on the floor. So C.S. Lewis is in the midst of this, taking care of his brother, <coughs> who's an alcoholic now, and taking care of Mrs. Moore, who's senile with dementia. And he is the one who's, a, who's pointed, appointed to take out Bruce every 15, 20 minutes. It's in the midst of that very... <laughs> It's then he starts to write The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, doing something extraordinary that has changed the world in the midst of something very basic and earth, earthy, humble. Bruce finally died, and Warney in his journal wrote, What joy, the dog has finally died. <laughs> Lewis in his writings said, I spend my days taking care of human vomit and dog uh, dog poop or something. He had another word for poop. What is the point of this story? <laughs> and as, as I have been, as I have seen, seen, seen different communities and been part of them, there's, there's, there's errors on different sides. One is you pursue the extraordinary, but you forget the daily. And, and it's the drudgery where our character is, is formed. C.S. Lewis is doing something extraordinary. People scoffed at him, writing a children's book. He did something extraordinary in, in, in the midst of perhaps one of the most stressful environments. Very earthy, as I've um, illustrated with humor. And it's the same with us, not to forget our humility, our open hands, our brokenness, as we not give up on something extraordinary. The other side is daily life becomes so pressing, so burdensome, you don't see acts of faith that we sort of stand back and say, well, whatever, I'm just going to live my life, serve God, but I'm not going to seek for change in a place like Burundi or whatever. So it's both and. Justice, mercy, and humility together, that mandate being what God has called us to do, it's not optional. It is the litmus test of faith, not um, sacrifice, but obedience. The whole point of Micah, the whole point of that passage is obeying him in justice, mercy, and humility far 
uh, eclipses any sacrifice that one could make. Any sacrifice, coming to church, doing church, all of that is for naught if you're not doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. Let's pray. I'm just going to lead you through a prayer time, and um, don't worry, I won't embarrass you. But I, again, on that thought, what, what issue of justice, what person would you want to convey mercy towards? What area of your life do you ask for greater humility? Would you want to put on clothes of humility in that area of your life? Is that all right? May I say that prayer? Thank you. Father, thank you for who you are and the reckless mercy that descended upon um, our lives. We'll never forget your love compels us. And so, Father, I ask as we think about justice, each of us to go deeper in the area of justice, choose an area, and as that happens, you will intersect the gifts of each individual person. Through this church, there'll be a, there'll be a wave a movement of acts of justice, doing justice that will be unprecedented. Father, committing our life to it, giving our life, spending our life on behalf of the hungry and oppressed, taking on a new language to learn, to be able to communicate, understanding agriculture subsidies, taking the arts, which this community has an anointing on the arts, taking the arts to that new level and tutoring and mentoring other churches around the world in the arts, doing art together in communities, forgotten communities, together with people who are artists. And so, Father, we ask for those gifts of justice, that calling of justice. Never let us forget mercy. And, Father, if there's a person in each of our lives or people that we need to go to and, and offer an act of mercy. And, Father, above all, help us to walk humbly. We have not gotten it figured out. We are broken people, and we need you. Amen.